This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We've been digesting the sweeping new housing legislation unveiled by the governing Ford PCs Tuesday afternoon. The idea is to speed up the construction of new homes by dropping some rezoning requirements and fees paid by developers. The Tories have set a goal for 1.5 million homes to be built by 2031, with 285,000 earmarked for Toronto, 120,000 for Mississauga, and 113,000 for Brampton. Homeowners will be allowed up to three units on their property. As an example, a residential lot could have a house with a basement suite and a laneway unit in the backyard. Joining Libby to discuss on Wednesday, Dr. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo, and Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University. The province is basically doing everything that uh, what I would call the progressives uh, wanted. Uh, they 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 they're, they're focused on the uh, existing uh, housing stock and getting more you know densifying the existing housing stock, and uh, there's a lot of support for that. And there's a lot of support for more housing. I think even the, the Globe Mail and the Toronto Star have come out in support. We know in studies by CMHV and and uh, the the Home Builders Associations have all shown that there's a you know, we're, we've been underproducing housing, particularly non-high-rise types of housing. So uh, I, think, I think it's all very positive. Dr. Doucette, is this giving too much sway to developers? Well, let's take a step back for a second. We're talking about a housing crisis, right? We've been talking about it for a few years. And when we start to get into the details of what that means politically, it it's very much a middle-class housing crisis, which is real, right? People who make good incomes who five, ten years ago would have never imagined that they wouldn't be able to afford a place to live are now victims of a housing crisis. But if we take a step back further, we've seen housing crisis for people on minimum wage, living wage, ODSP for, for decades, if not centuries. And these are people who are struggling with genuinely affordable housing. What a lot of the proposals in this bill will do is address some of those middle-class concerns about housing, right? People who make $100,000 a year and can't afford to buy something in Toronto may have some more options, although whether or not it produces housing for them is, is still uncertain. But for people who are on lower incomes, the working poor, marginalized communities, this will do very, very little to, um, to create more supply for them. And it may actually erode some of the housing that's already affordable to those uh, on low incomes. Uh, Frank, yeah, I've seen that that criticism. Uh, basically, the theory is that that uh, uh, developers or landlords will take the opportunity if they own uh, low income housing to uh, upgrade it. 
there, there's some of that. It's called financialization in the the, uh, the academic literature right now. <laughs> but uh, I agree. Uh, the, there's two affordability problems, uh, and the affordability problem of low-income people have been been with us. And if uh, CMHC has something they calculate called the core housing need, and a percentage of all the households in the Toronto region or uh, that uh, are in core housing need really hasn't changed since 1991. So we're not making that problem any better, but we're not. Uh, it's not getting any worse. But by t- helping the middle-income class of people, you provide more units for the lower income because it takes pressure off 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 them. And besides that, I think most economists would agree that the problem of lower-income people uh, for housing is not you know it's not a, uh, a a shelter problem. It's not a housing problem. It's an income problem. Their incomes are too low. What Frank's talking about is the idea of trickling down, right? So you build more. Uh, you know, middle-class housing, and then things filter down. But there's one aspect of this bill that's particularly worrying that actually does the opposite, reducing the requirements that cities like Toronto have to replace affordable rental units that are lost when a building is demolished. So any unit, any building that has more than six units that's demolished for redevelopment, um, those affordable units have to be replaced. So reducing that actually creates not only a huge incentive to just knock down as much affordable rental rental housing and build higher end units, but it actually doesn't then produce any new units that are affordable. And a lot of the work that we've been doing here locally in in Waterloo Region has really been looking at this erosion of housing that's affordable to people on low, moderate, and to some extent even middle incomes. There's very little evidence to suggest that this kind of approach to housing creates large numbers of new units that are affordable to people who need it. I mean, you give the example of, you know, one single-family home and you replace it with two luxury homes. Um, That tends to be what happens. So, again, it's adding housing, which is good. I mean, every housing researcher will say our housing needs to grow with the population uh, growth. But the question of who is this housing for and who is going to have access to it also needs to be really central in terms of how we're Uh, focusing on addressing the housing crisis. Dr. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo, and Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The conversation about the proposed housing legislation continued into Thursday with our Tune Into the Town panel. As part of the proposed plan, there would be sweeping new rules for zoning and development that would cut the responsibilities of conservation authorities, possibly giving more leeway to developers. Karen Stintz is the CEO of Variety Village. Anna Bailau is a former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor. And David Crombie is a former Toronto Mayor and has a vested interest in protecting Ontario's Greenbelt. This is an attempt to try, a, a, a good solid attempt, to try and increase the supply of housing. And everybody talks about the importance of the increase in the supply of housing. I have a bit of a different take because, well, I agree with that part and laud those parts of, it, of the plan that, that, that call for more uh, housing, there, there are four items which I think people should pay attention to. First of all, this is not a plan for affordable housing. There is no affordable strategy, affordable housing strategy in this plan. Secondly, this is a continuing war, been going on now for some time, with the conservation authorities. 
who've been guarding our environmental assets now for 75 years, but this government has continued to war against it. Three, it also gobbles up a recipe for gobbling up more farmland at a time when food security and food productivity are really important to us. And finally, even when they're dealing with some way in which they're going to cheapen the cost of housing by getting rid of development charges, those development charges are not got rid of. They're just put on the city at a time when the city can ill afford it. So I think while they may be lauding certain aspects of it and other people can do that, I think you should pay attention to those four really vitally important things in the future. Okay, let's go to Anna Bailao. Housing was your file when you were a councillor very recently. What do you think of these changes? So, so Libby, there, there's a lot of good changes in there um, that, you know, the, the city has been calling. Some of them, the city has been ahead of them. You know, you talked about the three units per lot. I mean, that's what we have right now in the city of Toronto. So some of this stuff is things that, that a lot of people have been called. I, I do caution because this will have an impact on the market affordability. But as uh, David said, it will not tackle the deeper affordable housing. And I keep saying this, you know, we cannot fund our way out of this. Absolutely. You know, it's not only governments that need to invest, but we cannot also build our way out of this. We need both. And so this strategy is important, is needed, but it will never create the deeper affordable housing. We still need governments to invest. And with this, I, I emphasize two issues that, that David brought, the, the, the conservation authorities and also the, 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 the growth, how to pay for this growth. It is clear that, and everybody agrees, it, it's, it, it's costing a lot in DCs. So let's, yes, let's remove some of these projects that maybe should not be on the back of just new homeowners and just new renters. But then who's going to pay? The government is only have ha- is only having, in my opinion, half of the conversation. They're saying, okay, let's remove it, but but it's not saying, okay, let's get to the table and and let's have it. They're just being basically, as David said, giving the bill to the city, and the city has the least amount of revenue tools to pay for these things. So it feels like we're inviting to being invited to a great party, but at, at the end of the night, we're being given the bill. That's how it feels. Uh, yep, yep. Karen, uh, what is your take? I think that we've, we've bought into this myth that if we just lifted the zoning, then it would be this panacea to our housing problems. And it's a myth. That's all that it is. It is one big myth. I mean, Toronto has been building housing more than any other city in North America. We have nothing but housing. We have nothing but condos that have popped up everywhere. We have Our, our housing sector is booming. Construction sector is booming. It's not a lack of permission. And to suggest that, you know, it's just NIMBYism that's preventing affordable housing is, is quite frankly, lunacy and a myth that needs to be dispelled. Even if you were to uh, allow apartment buildings to be built everywhere in the city, which, again, I think is lunacy, where are you going to find the people to do it? You know, there's there's construction shortage, like there's, there's labor shortages everywhere. We're already at our maximum. We're already building what we can build. And if in certain areas of the city, I'm going to suggest that we're building too much density. I don't know what the answer is to affordable housing. I, I do think it's specifically investing in um, affordable places for people to live with some kind of dispensation that everybody contributes to, whether it's existing homeowners, developers, uh, levels of government. But it's not, it's, it's this, this idea that these sweeping changes are the panacea is, is just wrongheaded and quite frankly needs to be unpacked for what it is.
Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor, and David Crombie, former Toronto Mayor and friend of Ontario's Greenbelt. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, how best to protect your investments during these challenging economic times. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was decided at the Bank of Canada that a half a point percentage hike to the key lending rate would be enough this time. The latest interest rate announcement came down on Wednesday, providing a touch of relief for those Canadians who have a balance on a line of credit or a variable rate mortgage. And while the rate was not raised by three quarters of a percentage point and was hiked a half point instead, the caveat is that there are more rate hikes to come before the inflation taming is finished. And for those living off their savings, interest rates may be up, but the markets have been taking a beating with no sign of a full recovery in sight. Economists, meantime, are expecting a recession. So what can we do to best protect ourselves during this challenging time? On Wednesday, Libby asked this question of Leslie Ann Scorgi, founder of MeVest, a leading-edge financial education company specializing in money coaching for Canadians, and Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters. We've been seeing interest rates going up uh, quite quickly, obviously, in the wake of what's happening in Ottawa as far as the Bank of Canada is concerned. We have this um, new increase today of uh, half a percentage point. What this is doing, of course, is it's increasing the returns that are being paid on um, fixed income securities, uh, specifically GICs, Guaranteed Investment Certificates, which have long been shunned by investors because of the fact that interest rates have been so low that uh, returns on GICs or uh, high-interest savings accounts, any of these cash-type vehicles, have been very low. Well, now, of course, we're seeing a rapid turnaround on this. Uh, We're finding um, some five-year GICs are available in the 5% range. Uh, They'll probably uh, inch a little bit higher after the announcement from Bank of Canada today. And we're also, interestingly, seeing that um, some of the uh, high-interest savings accounts are uh, paying some pretty decent returns, at least decent compared to what they were before. Uh, I noticed that uh, HSBC, uh, which is uh, up for sale, as Canadian operations up for sale, is offering a uh, high-rate savings account uh, that pays 4.25%, and that's um, very unusual, very high, not likely to last for very long. Uh, but uh, these are the trends that we're seeing right now, Libby. Let's go to Leslie Ann. Uh, on the other side of it, if you're carrying debt, and even a lot of older people are carrying debt, what should you be doing? It's such a, an issue right now because if you are carrying something like a fairly sizable variable rate mortgage that isn't uh, that does not have like a capped payment, it's not uh it's 
it's probably like going to be many hundreds of dollars more for you to service that mortgage next month and then a few more hundred dollars into January because the Bank of Canada is alluding to these rates continuing to increase in an effort to quell inflation. So, you know, what I'm advising is if you are in this position of carrying some of the the, the variable rate debt, uh, you know, shifting gears to see what you can do in your current uh, budget and your current spending to see if you can find any extra dollars because you're going to need them uh, to put towards servicing these debts. And, and I'm going to list another one, a home equity line of credit. There's so many people with HELOCs, home equity lines of credit, that are now well exposed to the rising rates. So this is about being very savvy with the money that you do have. Uh, there, There's no way to kind of get around this. You're going to be looking at trimming from other categories in your budget to come up with the extra cash to service the debt. Now, there was a couple of months ago um, a bit of a pivot for those who were on variable rate products. They were pivoting to try and lock in and, and get into some of more fixed products like fixed rate mortgages. Um, and you're starting to see people shy away from even that because the fixed rate mortgages are, are higher. They're, they're considerably higher than they were a year ago. Um, and that's not feeling very good. So this is really about a time of caution. It is about a time of finding extra capital if you've got it. Um, but like Gordon was saying, uh, on the flip side of this, if you have the, the benefit of having some savings here, you can capitalize on the higher rates in your high interest savings accounts, in the GICs. But let's face it, those returns are, are not going to outpace the cost of servicing the debt. So if you've so, got it, you know what? You're going to have to service the debt more than likely. Leslie Ann Scorgie, founder of MeVest, a leading edge financial education company specializing in money coaching for Canadians, and Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've learned from the most recent 2021 census information, the proportion of non-religious Canadians has more than doubled in the past 20 years, with nearly 35% saying they have no religious affiliation. That is up from 16.5% in 2001. And while Christianity remains the majority religion in Canada, only 53% of the population reported an affiliation with a Christian religion, down 14% from 2011 and 24% from 2001. Libby discussed the findings with Elise Herzig, Executive Director of Jayaz Toronto, and Dr. Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme, Associate Professor and Associate Chair of Undergraduate Studies in Sociology at the University of Waterloo. Um, I don't know if I was surprised about them. These had been trends that had been going on for some time. But uh, when a third, of, when just over a third of the population says they have no religion, that's still a pretty impactful number. Um, and 
you know, the the way you ask a question in any survey always has a little bit of an impact on, on how the answers are shaped or formed in respondents' minds. And so with the census, it's an open-ended question about what is your religion. And so, but there is a little specific box for no religion that you can check. And that, that's been the format of the question since uh, 1971. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if it has a, any impact that uh, um, people from certain cultures, it's, it's not just a religion, it's a culture. Uh, do you think that might mm-hmm. have had an impact? Yeah, I think, you know, this, uh, the way we ask the religious affiliation question is impacted by, um, our Christian, kind of our Christian heritage, uh, um, in, in much of the country, at least for the white, white European settler populations. And so we are still, that the, the question dates back to the 19th century, uh, that Stats Can asks. And so, yes, it, it, it's a question that, assumes that you have this distinct thing that is called religion and that you define as religion um, in your mind. And we know, for example, that that doesn't work so well for certain groups, for example, indigenous peoples in Canada, who tend to see their spiritualities as very much part of their daily lives and don't necessarily distinguish it from other aspects of their way of life. Um, that also goes for, for example, uh, groups in East Asia, um, who might not define what they do as religious, but they do have things like ancestral worship, um, or, you know, they might visit temple, and we'll define it maybe more in, in spiritual terms. Let's bring in Elise Herzik. Uh, Elise, um, we've seen big numbers of immigrants, more immigrants expected. Do we have what we need to absorb these immigrants? What we're seeing now are the problems that Canadians who've been here for a long time also face. Housing is impacting the immigrants. So if there's a housing crisis and someone comes to Canada looking for work and employment and all of a sudden is dealing with inflation, they're facing the same problems. But what we've noticed is there was a really interesting study done by Enveronics that talked about um, how Canadians are actually more and more embracing immigrants but that the, they allude to the study that was done actually by the um, Association for Canadian Studies that the settlement sector that is supposed to support these groups um, has challenges of not being consistently funded. Funding comes year after year, so you can't do long-term planning. And so for these newcomers that are looking ways to build community and belong, the services are inconsistent. And the other thing just to throw in is that as it's becoming more expensive to live in urban centres, Many of the immigrants are now looking to smaller cities to to find, you know, to build their lives. And those communities actually are very poorly served because they just don't have the resources that the larger urban centers have. What would you like to see in terms of uh, helping settle all these immigrants that we need and, and who are coming? Well, I think, you know, the Statistics Canada report made some big predictions about 2041, which, while it's 19 years away, is actually not that far away. And if we know that we have a growing trend of immigrants, especially those who are racialized in terms of um, from a visible point of view, I think we need to start working now to make sure we have the right support so that these people are welcomed, that they can thrive, and that they know that they belong. And 19 years is not as far away as we think, so we have to deal with some of the systemic issues that are actually, you know, putting people and creating barriers and, and, you know, causing difficulties for them to really thrive. 
Libby's conversation on Thursday with Elise Herzig, Executive Director of JIAS Toronto, and Dr. Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme, Associate Professor and Associate Chair of Undergraduate Studies in Sociology at the University of Waterloo. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Amon in Toronto called about how higher interest rates are affecting him personally. The rental property that I have, you know, the interest payment, the mortgage payment on that was $2,300 a month in January. And now the same mortgage on that one is about $3,500 a month, which is about a 50% increase. Uh, given that rental rates, you know, our uh, increases are set by the provincial government last year was at 2.4%. Do we anticipate that the government's going to allow us to go you know, say 20 or 30% this year, given that the mortgage payments have gone up 50%. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Raul in Toronto, who phoned about the results on religious affiliation in the latest census information. A lot of people who come here Lastly, they, they might want to blend in. So they'll be like uh, Russell Peters said, my dad thought that being Canadian meant cooking burgers on a grill. So we're going to look really Canadian today, is what his dad said. And we're going to grill up uh, a bunch of burgers to serve to people in the neighborhood. A lot of people, <clears throat> they think, oh, well, there's a lot of hating on Christians now. We're just being confused with Catholics and what allegedly happened many, many years ago. So if I put down that I'm not a Christian, then it'll make me a real Canadian. There's a lot of variables, a lot of angles that may result in people not answering honestly. Lastly, when I was a little kid, we used to have a Bible in school. For the past 20-odd years, millennials and I think Generation Z, they have gone without Bibles in the school. So that could be a contributing factor to certain trends or fads that are orchestrated by design. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.